In this important and special episode of State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, we explore the complex economic consequences already being felt in Israel as a result of the judicial reform legislation. Our special guest today is Professor Karnit Flug, who served as governor of the Bank of Israel from 2013 to 2018. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel and now a true Tel Avivian, a resident of the state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us to the end of this fascinating conversation with one of Israel's most influential public figures. Karnit Flug is a remarkable woman a brilliant dynamo with a CV to match. She is diminutive in stature, but a towering figure in terms of professional accomplishment. Born in Warsaw, Professor Flug came to Israel with her family at age three in the late 1950s and eventually rose through the ranks of a very male-dominated profession, getting right to the top. She does not present as a feminist activist, at least not overtly so, just a supremely competent person who had the good fortune to work with men who accepted her for what she was and promoted her on that basis. And she has the distinction of having worked very closely with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over three decades. Her observations on how the man has changed over time are profound. We begin with a brief chat about Professor Flug's inspiring professional experiences and then get down to brass tacks about how the judicial reform legislation is impacting Israel's economy. This interview sizzles all the way through and there's plenty of stake. Professor Karnit Flug, thank you so much for joining State of Tel Aviv today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the rather challenging issues we're dealing with in Israel today, I wanted to do a quick flashback with you to your quite extraordinary career, which is still ongoing. You have consistently advanced. You've broken through one very significant glass ceiling at the Bank of Israel, having been appointed governor and the only woman ever to have achieved that chair, correct? That's true. So how do you understand and explain your success as a woman in What tends to be a male-dominated profession? Well, I started my career, actually my second serious job was at the Bank of Israel, and I went through the ranks from being an economist up to becoming governor. And actually, when I was appointed, I thought that what was really different than the previous governors was that I came from the ranks. But I realized that actually what caught more attention by the public was the fact that I was the first female governor. And I think to some extent, I owe my appointment to the fact that uh, Stanley Fisher was my predecessor. I worked very closely with him. I learned from him a lot. He actually led my appointment to become deputy governor. And then when he decided to quit, he was sort of in favor of my appointment. Initially, at least, I don't think the prime minister really wanted to appoint me. He tried several other candidates. Somehow these didn't work out. And then I was appointed. I think, though, that it was also to some extent a different era in terms of appointment of 
female professionals to senior positions. In fact, when I was governor, most of the other financial regulators were women. That is no longer the case. And things are unfortunately now moving backwards. And we see less women in senior positions in the financial sector. We see less general managers of ministries. We see much less women in politics. So I think, unfortunately, we're actually going backwards. Are you speaking just about Israel or are you speaking more broadly? I'm speaking now about Israel. I'm not sure that in other places it goes in the same way. I think there it's mixed, but in Israel it's certainly going backwards. Though I have to say, when I was governor and when I was going to meetings in international fora for governors, there were very few women in the room. So that was the case then. And... Was that something that you, I think you had indicated earlier when we were chatting before we turned on the microphones, that you never felt that the environment in the Bank of Israel as an institution was focused on gender? That's true. I think throughout my career up to the senior job, I never thought that being a woman actually mattered. I think it was really, advancement was based on merits and on nothing else. Which is extraordinary. Do you think that Israel had an unusual institutional culture in the Bank of Israel compared to other places? the time, I was very proud that the financial sector in general was quite balanced in terms of gender. We had, at the time, three of the five general managers of the large banks were women. And as I said, the financial regulators were mostly women. I think part of it is, you know, there is sometimes a historical evolution. Actually, the first female CEO of banks was before that the regulator of banks at the Bank of Israel. That's mm. where she started her career. Who was that? Galia Maor. And she appointed a woman as her assistant who later became, much later, became again the CEO of the same bank. When I was governor, I appointed the deputy governor, who was a woman, and the regulator of banks, who was a woman. So I think sometimes there are some specific women in the senior positions who are not blind to seeing capable women. They somehow don't overlook them. So I think that sometimes plays a role. But as I said, things have not continued in the same direction. Well, hopefully the meritocracy will be restored. I hope so. Professor Flug is speaking with the state of Tel Aviv in a nonpartisan capacity and shares her views and perspectives as an economist. We begin by looking at how well Israel fared economically throughout the COVID years relative to most countries. Israel's very tech-heavy economy prospered in a world that moved significantly towards digital interaction in all spheres of life and business, for obvious reasons. It's only now that Israel is stumbling, and it has nothing to do with COVID, and everything to do with judicial reform. Back to Karnit Flug. Looking at the global shocks and what they did to the Israeli economy, and now the current developments of the judicial overall, which I think is a very different 
things. So let me start with the first global shocks and the last one being COVID. And here I think actually the Israeli economy performed particularly well for two reasons. One is because I think generally policy was the right policy and it worked in the sense that before the crisis, actually fiscal policy was quite conservative. Debt was low. Monetary policy was, I think, reasonable and maintained low interest rates when inflation was low. And so I think generally we had macroeconomic stability, which allowed the government and the central bank to react very forcefully to the economic fallout of the COVID crisis. And actually there was a very strong fiscal stimulus and also monetary stimulus. And they worked very well in the sense that the decline of activity was relatively small and short-lived. And the recovery was miraculous in the sense that in the years 2021 and 2022, growth was 8.5 and 6.4% in each of these years. And we actually came back to the level of activity that was before COVID very, very quickly. Labor market is tight. So when you look at the, actually the ability of macroeconomic policy to support the economy through this very difficult time, it was very successful. And if you add to that the fact that the structure of the economy is such that we have a very large high-tech sector right. that not only didn't suffer during COVID, but actually experienced huge growth during COVID on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a relatively small tourism sector, which was the sector that everywhere else suffered terribly. It suffered very terribly here too but it's a very small portion of the economy. So the structure of the economy was relatively immune to the effects of COVID. And therefore, in economic terms, actually, I think you can say that Israel was relatively quite resilient because of its structure, because of the policies. Now, these policies do have side effects. And when you have very strong fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, you get higher debt, you get higher inflation, you have to deal with that. But this is something that the Israeli policymakers have done before. And we already see that debt is back in terms of debt to GDP ratio is back to where it was pre-COVID. Inflation is, you know, with some strong interest rate hikes is going back to sort of on its way, I would say, going back to more normal levels. So in that sense, I think when I look at the experience with the COVID crisis, I actually see a functioning policy that has done its job and prevented a much greater suffering that would have been if you didn't have these macroeconomic tools. Now, I think the issue of the current judicial overall and what that can do to the economy is a completely different story. 
Well, we'll jump into that since <laughs> you've just, that. you know, segued beautifully. <laughs> Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. This moment in history is considered by many to be the most critical and existential in Israel's 75-year history. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60, Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. Now, back to the podcast. On January 24th, Professor Flug co-authored a very powerful op-ed piece with Jacob Frankel that was published in the Jerusalem Post, and it was entitled the proposed reform of the judicial system is a risk to the economy. Frankel is another powerhouse figure in Israeli and global economic circles. He's also a former governor of the Bank of Israel. He served on two separate occasions in the 90s in this role and worked for many years in top financial institutions based in New York. Frankel and Flug's powerful essay focused on the economic impact that the proposed judicial reform may have on the economy. Remember, this was in January, very early days, but the alarms were already being sounded. I asked Professor Flug to summarize their joint concerns as they were expressed then, and how things have played out since. Yeah, so my concern have not been alleviated, as you can imagine. Actually, they intensified since we've written that article. And I can divide my concerns into concerns about the short term. And we already see some of the results of the uncertainty about where we're heading in terms of this legislation. We see them in many indicators of the performance of the economy already. And my bigger concerns are about the longer term and what the effects could be in the longer term. So in the short term, we already see the decoupling of our markets from the global markets. If you look at what the performance of the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, and you see the performance of the Israeli stock market, you see they always went together, and now it's they're decoupling and the performance of the Israeli share prices are significantly inferior. In all the indicators of risk, you see much higher risk of Israel compared to what it was before. We've seen the weakening of the shekel. It strengthened a little bit recently, but there was actually an analysis made by the Bank of Israel that was presented by the governor of the Bank of Israel that showed that uh, if you look at the pattern of the Israeli shekel, it actually weakened by 10% beyond where it should have been according to various indicators that affected it in the past. And you can actually see that the events which are related to the advancement of the legislation are the events that led the weakening of the shekel. 
you can look at the statements made by the various rating agencies regarding the risks that they see by legislation that will not be passed with broad consensus or broad agreement. So all of these are already seen, you know, as we look now at all the economic indicators. But when you look a little bit further forward, what we can base our expectations on are what happened in various economies that went through similar legislation like Hungary or Poland. And more broadly, we look at the body of research that shows how important are institutions and the um, checks and balances to the economic development and growth. And when you take this kind of research and try to deduct from that what can happen in terms of the level of GDP or GDP per capita or growth, you get to very, very large numbers. And that has been done since we've written that article by several researchers you know, show a decline, a potential decline in growth between 0.8% annually and 2.8% annually, which is basically, if you take just the middle of that range, you basically wipe out the growth in per capita income that is potentially expected otherwise. So it's an extremely severe effect on the economy. And I have to, just before you carry on, I have to underscore, this is speculative, of course. It's done by researchers doing their their best to be oracular and see into the future. It could be much worse, in fact. It can be much worse, and that's why I said I'll take the middle. And obviously, each of these kind of analysis is based on many assumptions. But when you look at what is already happening and the indicators that I already mentioned, and when you understand the importance for the Israeli economy of the high-tech sector, and the high-tech sector is extremely dependent on foreign investment, and you see what already happened to the foreign investment in that sector, I think the future is quite bleak. And so when you speak of foreign investment in the Israeli high-tech sector and you say it's already taken a big hit and you attribute that to the prospective judicial reform, I'm assuming that embedded in that comment you make is that the reduction in foreign investment in Israeli high-tech is greater than what we might see, for example, in U.S. high-tech, because high-tech globally is taking a hit. That's exactly right. Okay. And I, I think that actually there are some pieces of research that already show the difference and how much greater was the decline in the investment in the Israeli high-tech compared to that same sector elsewhere. You can actually see in indicators of the beginning of a recovery in that sector elsewhere, but you don't see it here. And it's not only in investment, it's also in employment and in the number of new positions and also in actual employment. In fact, today I saw a graph that showed the beginning of a recovery 
in the high-tech sector in the uh, U.S., uh, in employment mm-hmm. in the high-tech sector, and nothing of that in Israel. So this is just from this morning's press. And it's the decline in the number of positions in the high-tech. You see in Israel continued decline. In the U.S., you start seeing a recovery. I think this is a very clear indicator that something else is going on. And the main something else is the uncertainty related to the judicial overall. And one of the points that you and Professor Frankel make very, very strongly and clearly is that, you know, capital and labor markets, they like stability. They seek stability. They obviously, you know, you want to invest your money. You want to know what's coming tomorrow. And that the way in which Israel is perceived in the world at the moment, it's not so stable. Would you agree with that? Is that affecting investment levels? Is that affecting capital markets and labor markets? I think markets in general don't like uncertainty. And right now, what they see is uncertainty, but that's not the only thing. I think the uncertainty that will be resulting from the judicial overall, if it goes through, is uncertainty about the rules of the game. And I think this is a more sort of fundamental uncertainty in the sense that if an investor is not sure about the rules of the game and about the protection that he has from the court, if there are arbitrary decisions taken by a governmental agency and he cannot appeal to the Supreme Court if he thinks that the changes that were made in the rules of the game are unreasonable or unexpected, I think this is what really scares investors. And I think that's why this specific judicial changes are so scary from the perspective of investors. Now, I think that generally, investors are looking for places that they know what the rules are. And now, with the decline in available capital all over, they certainly will not come to a place where the rules of the game are unstable. And I want to really pick up on a very important point you just made when you're talking about potential investors coming in and perhaps there's an administrative decision that's made with which they don't agree. Uh, it could be a range of decisions. But should these judicial reforms, as they are now presented, should they be passed, one of the outcomes is that not only will the Supreme Court of Israel be eviscerated, it will have most of its jurisdiction stripped away. The judges and judicial officials and all of the machinery of justice in the public service will be managed and run by individuals appointed by political leaders. In other words, the entire judicial system will be politicized. And that goes to your point when you were just saying, you know, well, if there's no Supreme Court to which to appeal, and there's a lack of confidence that that decision will actually be judicial in terms of being independent, That's going to really hurt things. Judicial independence, that is one of the most important things that is at the core of the so-called reform is that the judiciary in Israel will no longer be regarded as being independent. 
That's certainly a major concern or the major concern, I would say. I have to say that there are some other worrisome developments that are related to that. Please. And the fact that, for example, the attacks on the Bank of Israel and on the Bank of Israel governor, which is a very important independent institution, And we all know what it means if your central bank is not independent. Now, the kind of rhetoric and the kind of trends to me are also worrisome in the sense that maybe the next appointment of the governor will not be just somebody who is really the professional and will be independent. So this is another concern. We've seen the attacks on professionals in general in the public sector and the tendency to appoint political appointees. And that has already been weakening the public sector and the professionalism of the public sector. I think we already see some signs of that and some reluctance of professional people to actually go into the public sector. So I'm concerned also of the broader ramifications of these uh, judicial changes. I share your concern. I have to say, I think that uh, recruiting into the public sector must be quite a challenge these days. And you, of course, in your comments just now, you focused on the quite strong verbal attacks made by elected political officials in Israel in recent weeks and months on the governor of the Bank of Israel. And I, as a lawyer, look at the way in which the Attorney General and other senior judicial officials in Israel have been attacked openly, publicly, and in the confines of cabinet discussions. I'm just speaking for myself and as a lawyer that when the independence of senior judicial officials and the Attorney General are utterly and totally disrespected and disdained, we all have to pause and take a hard look. And it's not only you, me, and Israelis. We know that two days ago, we're speaking now on Thursday, two days ago on Tuesday, President Isaac Herzog, President of Israel, met with President Biden. And President Biden very clearly expressed his concerns about exactly the issues that we're talking about that he's seeing. And, you know, when the President of the United States weighs in on the domestic crisis on Israel, I'd imagine that economists kind of gasp and think, oh dear, what effect might this have on the Israeli economy? Well, I think it's broader than just the economy. I think Israel's strong ties with the U.S. are in so many uh, fronts. They're strategic, they're economic, they're political, And I, I can't even start thinking about what it would mean if these strong ties are broken. I, I think that also from a strategic and defense point of view, I think it's going to be terrible. So I think here I would not even put the economy or the economic concerns on the top of the list. There are other concerns that... maybe are even more existential. So I, I would I, agree with you on that. I'm just being very respectful of your, 
you know, economist box no, here. Yeah, I understand. But sometimes I sort of take the lid off if you pick want. Pick up. Yeah. <laughs> Feel <laughs> free. Pick from the box. So I, I really very much hope that somebody will wake up and understand that you can't pull the, no, I'm not sure how you say it anyway, but you can't push further and risk these extremely important relations. You know, I just can't imagine what it means actually breaking these ties. I think that I, I share your concerns and I agree with you that the, the implications go way beyond the economy and, you know, Israel kind of reverting back to being a poor country with a less developed economy, and that could happen. But I think Biden, actually, President Biden put it very well, and it's been echoed by others, that we're talking about shared values. And through all of the trials and tribulations that Israel has experienced over decades of particularly close friendship with America, it is the shared value, the shared commitment to liberalism, democracy, and all that goes with that, that has allowed the relationship to continue and flourish as it has. But what President Biden did, both when meeting with President Herzog, but in a very interesting and extraordinary meeting he had immediately after with Thomas Friedman, who is a columnist with the New York Times, mm -hmm. and that day was basically acting as President Biden's spokesman. Yeah. And uh, they sat down for an hour and 15 minutes. I'm sure you read the same article that I did many times. And President Biden just said things in a much more direct way to Tom Friedman that he could not, out of respect and protocol and probably a whole bunch of other things, to President Herzog. But he basically said, if they don't stop, if this judicial reform legislation is not stopped, and if Prime Minister Netanyahu does not take the time to build a broad consensus that our relationship with and support of Israel is going to be very threatened. I mean, it doesn't get more stark than that, does it? I agree. It's scary. It is scary. And President Biden has been so engaged on the Israel file, if I can put it that way, for over 50 years. And he's probably, as Tom Friedman acknowledged, the last of the Democrats that will support Israel. So if we if we lose his support, it, as you said earlier, it's it's very it's existential, and the consequences could be more dire than any of us want to contemplate. Professor Flug and I were speaking on Thursday, July twentieth, days before the reasonableness law passed, second and third readings in the Knesset, and ignited a ferocious reaction among the majority of Israelis. Immediately after the bill's passage, a small group of protest leaders and supporters set out on foot from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, a four-day march that quickly became a ribbon of tens of thousands of Israelis, walking in solidarity. From the air, they looked like an enormous collage of moving Israeli flags. They marched in the early morning and evenings, resting during the intense heat and midday sun. Volunteers organized food and tents. The atmosphere, according to participants with whom I spoke, was at once empowering and hopeful, but not at all naive. The expectation is that this battle for Israel's soul will take years. This is just the warm-up act. There was no doubt that the law would pass. The question was and remains, why? Why put the nation through such turmoil? 
Prime Minister Netanyahu says repeatedly that the reasonableness law is no big deal. Changes nothing, in fact. Much ado about nothing. Fun fact. He makes these comments in interviews he grants only to the foreign English language press. He refuses to engage with the Israeli media. Why? Because he knows that they will challenge his disingenuous spin relentlessly. He gets away with much more with the foreign media. All right, then, you might ask, then why jam it through right before the summer recess? What's the hurry if it does nothing much? And the answer, clearly, is that it actually does a lot. It signals to Bibi's extremist coalition partners that he is honoring his coalition agreements with them. These guys, and they are all guys, are not backing down. They are not going to allow Netanyahu to squirm out of his commitments as he has done throughout his political career. It signals that the coalition intends to press on with judicial reform. And that is definitely not good news for liberal democracy. More importantly, it also sets the stage for Netanyahu to appoint the recidivist criminal, Shas leader Aryeh Deri, to two senior cabinet spots. After all, it was the Israeli Supreme Court that held in March that someone of Derry's low moral character was absolutely unsuited to hold high office. And in so finding, the court relied upon the reasonableness doctrine. So, as would any staunch liberal Democrat, Bibi and his colleagues decided they must strip the court of the jurisdiction to decide matters relating to senior government appointments on the basis of reasonableness. Seriously, it's like playing whack-a-mole with these guys. So they just say, okay, we'll pass a law so we can do whatever we want. That's what this is really about. And Israelis and global financial markets understand that. This is not cool. We continue our discussion with Professor Fluke, again, in the days leading to the final passage of the reasonableness bill in the Knesset. So here we are in the belly of the beast, so to speak, reasonableness law legislation that has passed first reading in the Knesset and by all, by the looks of things now, will be jammed through second and third reading early next week. And this is our Waterloo. This is our battle of Waterloo. This is really the week or the few days that count. And should the legislation pass, I'm asking you to stargaze a little. What do you think will happen? The day after. (laughs) I am very worried. I think that, you know, if we all knew that this is the only legislation that passes and that after that, nothing will pass without a broad agreement, maybe not the end of the world in the sense that there are probably other, I'm not a lawyer, but I think there are other causes to stop unreasonable or very unreasonable decisions other than using this unreasonableness clause. However, I'm very concerned that this is not the end of the legislation and the changes and that there will be other moves to reduce the independence or eliminate the independence of the judiciary system and the oversight of the judiciary over decision of the executive branch. And I think this 
you know, scenario. We've talked about the potential effects of that. I think it's not only on the economics, but this is where I sort of, my expertise are. But I think it's going to change the soul of this country. Thanks for joining us. And please consider supporting State of Tel Aviv with a paid or free subscription. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually. One year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. Karnit Flug is an economist, not an expert on the soul of the country. Nor am I. But we share a profound concern with the manner in which Prime Minister Netanyahu and his coalition partners are purporting to govern Israel and what that is doing to the DNA of Israel. Professor Flug, there's, it's so interesting because people are reacting so strongly. You and I both see week after week, 100, 150,000 people just in Tel Aviv going out on Saturday night to protest for six, six and a half months straight. And my sense is that they're not protesting perceived tweak in the law or, you know, something they don't like. We've all learned to live with that in democracies. What the perception is among the people is that what's happening here is systemic change and that what the coalition government is really working towards is a significant change of the institutional balance in this democracy and with its institutions. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's exactly the reason why so many people are out of the street week after week. I think the sense is that the government wants to have absolute power because, as you know, in Israel, there are no two chambers, right? There is only the Knesset, but the Knesset is controlled by the government once they have a, a majority coalition. So they can do in the Knesset, in our parliament, anything. They can pass anything they want. So the only balancing force is the Supreme Court. And once they will control that, once they will, you know, control all the appointments, that's it. There is complete power and complete power leads to complete corruption and to, you know, we don't have a constitution. There is, there are no basic rights that are protected by anything. Let me, yeah, I want to jump that, in here because that's where it's going. Yeah, as you say, you know, complete power concentrated, total power concentrated in the Knesset. You know, many people in Israel say, well, you know, the people who support the legislation, they say, well, the majority rules. We had an election. We've got a majority. That's just one part of democracy. Right. And what we don't have, as you mentioned, in Israel, we're a parliamentary democracy. So for our American listeners, you may not be as familiar with this, we don't have a bicameral legislative structure. So we don't have a ch upper chamber or a Senate. We don't have a constitution, which you mentioned. And if we have an eviscerated Supreme Court, we effectively have no checks and balances. There's no 
chamber or forum for sober second reflection and review of what goes on in the legislature. And legislatures, we know, get things wrong. They tilt towards tyranny. And that's exactly why healthy, strong, mature democracies have one or more of those things in addition to a legislature. Among the issues challenging Israel at this time is the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community, comprising approximately 13% of the population today and poised to constitute 30% of the population 30 years from now. The fertility rate per Haredi family is eight. Many families have 10 or 12 children. Boys and men study only religious texts, full-time, well into adulthood. No English, math, or science. That would actually prepare them to enter the workforce. So why don't they study it? Because they have no intention of working. Haredim rely on the state to provide the necessities of life. Food, shelter, everything. They refuse to serve in the IDF or to do national service. By every economic metric, they are net takers. And whenever this is mentioned, the ultra-Orthodox accuse the messenger of being anti-religious. Not at all. It's about equality and democracy. If you live in a society, you must also assume the obligations of citizenship, not just the rights. The insatiable and outrageous demands made by Haredim of the state are simply not sustainable. The dam has burst, and the people will no longer sit silently and endure. In the next segment, Professor Flug and I discuss this very sensitive issue, the economic place of Haredim in Israel. I want to just shift gears, Professor Flug, and talk about another aspect of the coalition government's reform. It's a very economic issue, and it regards the 13% of the population that we call Haredim here. Ultra-Orthodox, as a general rule, are very dependent on the state for all kinds of social economic supports, and they tend not to work. If the judicial reform passes, and if the Haredim are able to have legislation supporting their economic entitlements passed, what does that portend for the future of Israel economically? So I think it's a trend that the trend is accelerating in what sense. First of all, as you said, there, the Haredim are now 13% of the population. There will be about one-third of the population in about 30 years. There was a strategy to try and engage them into the labor market. It was very partially successful. It was successful in terms of an increase in the participation of Haredi women in the labor market, but it was much less successful with men. In fact, the tendency of getting men into the labor market halted when the allowances increased and became, again, not dependent on any work. Now, the latest decision by the current coalition was to provide a much larger support to the educational system, which doesn't provide any core curriculum. So it basically doesn't provide any skills that are necessary in the labor market currently and will be even more necessary in the future labor market. 
So if you combine all of this together, it means that there will be a larger share of the population that will become more and more dependent on public, on public support. And I think the willingness of the rest of the population to provide these growing needs in terms of uh, entitlements and, and budget, higher budget, will be, this willingness will be diminished. It will enhance the social tensions between the different groups, and it's a very heavy economic burden. How it's going to play out together with everything else, I'm not sure, but it doesn't make me optimistic. One of the sort of extraordinary aspects of this current government that Prime Minister Netanyahu is agreeing to dramatically not only increase economic entitlements, socioeconomic entitlements for the Haredi population, but also to agree that they should be you know, forever exempted from the draft and, as you said, not be required to study core curriculum. But it was Benjamin Netanyahu, when he served as Minister of Finance in the period 2003 to 2005, who, I mean, it was a real Jekyll Hyde moment if you look at it now, because he's the one who fought the battles to lower their entitlements at the time, to bring them in line with what was sustainable in Israel and to allow economic growth. I mean, he really did tremendous work in helping that big, cumbersome Israeli economy that was socialist, more or less, turn into a free market. Were you serving at that time uh, in the in Bank of Israel? Yeah, I was head of research department, and I thought actually that the moves were definitely in the right direction, maybe even more aggressive than somebody else would go through. But I think in retrospect, it was extremely successful. And I think generally that economic policies led by then Minister of Finance Netanyahu and also later by him as prime minister really helped Israel to get to the point with relatively high income per capita, high growth, extremely successful. And now he's risking his legacy, right? And it's incomprehensible how someone can, with few moves and satisfying some of his partners of the coalition, really tarnish his legacy completely. And that's, to me, incomprehensible. I share your kind of shock and awe. And I have to ask you, since I didn't really realize this until we sat here speaking, that you're one of the few people who's had the opportunity to work directly with Prime Minister Netanyahu throughout all of these phases and transitions and periods. So you were the head of research when he accomplished this very aggressive economic policy and had it passed and implemented. And then, of course, you were governor throughout your whole period as governor. Netanyahu was yeah, prime minister. He was actually the one who appointed me. The Netanyahu that you see now, is it the same Netanyahu that you feel that you worked with all those years? No. I think his decisions seem to be differently motivated. If when I worked with Netanyahu, when he was prime minister or when he was the minister of finance, I could see the reasoning behind his decisions, behind his policies. I didn't always agree, but I could understand them. Maybe 
Sometimes the dosage was different than what I would have preferred, but they certainly had a reason and they had the motivation of really doing good for the Israeli people and the Israeli economy. I can't say the same about the current decisions. It, it, it is absolutely mind-boggling. I think you, of course, have seen many of the same people that I have speaking on television interviews and on the radio, people who knew him very well and worked very closely with him and just saying this is not the same person. He's quite brilliant. He's well-educated. He understands public policy. And uh, it's one of the more concerning elements of you know who actually is driving the bus, so to speak. I want to close by giving you the opportunity you probably will never have, but who knows? If you did have the ear of Prime Minister Netanyahu for five minutes, what would you say to him today? If I had the ear of Prime Minister Netanyahu, I would say first, stop this legislation. It's really leading us to a very bleak future. Focus on what is important for the Israeli citizens, and you know what is important. And Regarding the legislation, there is no rush. You can set a committee of experts that can find what needs to be corrected. There are probably things that need to be corrected, but I think that should be only done with a very broad consensus. Well, I hope you do have the opportunity to sit down with Prime Minister Netanyahu sometime between now and, let's say, next Tuesday, when second and third reading are likely to pass in the Knesset. Professor Karnit Fluke, thank you so much for joining State of Tel Aviv. Fascinating discussion, and I hope we can have you back in a few months as the situation develops. Thank you very much. This is the conclusion of my conversation with Professor Fluke on July 20th, when we were looking apprehensively to the future. On July 24th, the first judicial reform law was passed by the Knesset, setting off an escalation of protests and so many negative reactions. Among them is the surge in Israelis taking active steps to relocate abroad. It's real, and State of Tel Aviv will be publishing an article on this very soon, on the website, stateoftelaviv.com, all one word. I also recommend that you check out an article published on the website on November 15, 2022, entitled, Fat Man, Thin Man. Will Netanyahu upend his economic legacy? in which we analyze the radical shift in Prime Minister Netanyahu with respect to Haredi economic entitlements. We have temporarily lifted the paywall on this article because it is so important that our listeners understand how critical a moment this is for Israel. And it provides strong background and analysis to understanding the import of this moment in Israeli history. As Professor Flug notes, it was when he served as Minister of Finance in 2003 to 2005, that Netanyahu slashed economic and other entitlements to the ultra-Orthodox population. And he boasts about this accomplishment, and rightly so, in his memoir that was published in November 2022. I mean, at the same time that he was negotiating with the ultra-Orthodox to support his coalition, and one of the main conditions to which he capitulated, totally, that they received billions of dollars more from the state, that the ultra-Orthodox be permanently exempted by law from serving in the IDF, that they not be required to teach English, math, and science in their schools in order to receive state funding 
for this medieval education. With the stroke of a pen, Netanyahu destroyed so much that had been accomplished. He agreed to destroy the economic miracle that Israel has become. And who will pay for all of this? Those who work, pay taxes, and serve in the army. Those who are reviled by this government as leftist anarchists, elitists, and racists. And why has Netanyahu risked his legacy in life's work? Why has Netanyahu ransomed the future of the state of Israel? He has done it out of self-interest. It's a conclusion I did not accept for too long, but it's staring us in the face. Benjamin Netanyahu will destroy Israel in order to cling to power. It's unbelievable, but true. If one looks at the facts, it is impossible to conclude otherwise. In the coming days, we will drop a shorter podcast featuring our follow-up conversation with Professor Flug on August 6th, in which we discuss the turmoil in Israel since the reasonableness law was passed. Spoiler alert, it doesn't get more uplifting. But you don't want to miss this. I thought it best to let this very intense podcast sit before we get into the next layer, give you some time to digest it. And the next layer? Reactions from the financial markets and rating agencies in New York, reactions from the people of Israel, and more. We'll have this ready for you to listen to later this week. In the meantime, thanks for joining us, and please consider supporting State of Tel Aviv with a paid or free subscription. If you value our work, then you understand that it requires resources to produce. Every single supporter makes a huge difference. This period is not just another of the ever-ending crises in Israel. This is 1948 and 1973 combined. It's real. And that is serious. That's it for this episode. As a dear friend of mine likes to say, never miss an opportunity to say nothing. There is nothing to add. Let it sink in. And then, maybe have another listen. This is Zero Hour for Israel. Thanks for tuning in.